this in a way that's accessible. So what I want to talk to you about is, for all intents and purposes, it's going to take me more than, more than one message, but the three types of leaven. I'm not going to call this a series because I don't know if that's what you would call this. I don't know how many messages I'm going to preach on this, but I'm definitely going to preach two. And some of you might be like, what are you talking about? Others of you might be like, oh, I know what you're going to be talking about. But if you don't, I'm going to make a case that, according to Scripture, that there's uh, parabolically three types of leaven. One is the genuine type of leaven, which is the kingdom of heaven. And then there's two counterfeits, counterfeit types of leaven that are, look, and this is where it gets tricky, they look kind of like, they look similar to the kingdom of heaven, but they're actually counterfeits and they're actually uh, of the enemy. And that Jesus himself tells us that we have to be careful and we have to watch out for the counterfeit leaven, and I'm going to get to that more later, because if we don't, then there could be a lot of negative uh, consequences if we don't watch out and if we, uh, if we embrace those. Okay, so um, what I want to do is sort of take the time to, to uh, elaborate on what I just said a little bit more, and then I'm going to focus on one of those types of counterfeit leavens today, and then we'll see where we go from here. But what I want to do is start off in, in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is a really powerful uh, portion of Scripture because... Uh, you know, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. What I love about Matthew 13 is that he gives a whole bunch of different parables in the same chapter saying the kingdom of heaven's like this, the kingdom of heaven's like that, the kingdom of heaven's like this. And we, for those who have ears to hear, he says, we can learn a lot about the kingdom of heaven just um, from those parables that he talks, uh, that he describes in that chapter. I'm going to focus on a, on a couple in particular. Okay, so uh, uh, as some of you who've been here before know, I like to give a lot of scriptures. So um, today, <laughs> we have it up there for you guys if you want to follow along. It's up to you. But I'm going to start off by giving you a portion of scripture from Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. Okay, and then I'm going to explain to you why I'm giving you this portion of scripture. So, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed into his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, do I have a... Yeah. Notice by the word tares, the word is actually... I don't know how you pronounce that. Darnel, I'll say, whatever. <laughs> this is actually a wheat resembling wheat. So that's key. Jesus is talking about wheat, and the reason why that matters is because it looks so similar to wheat, is what the point Jesus is making here. So the enemy comes in, sows tares, and I, I heard somebody say, if you actually look at tares, they look exactly like wheat, until they're fully matured. So until they're fully matured, you can't tell the difference, they look identical. The weeds, the tares, to the wheat, the actual uh, uh, grain that the Lord sowed himself. Okay, so while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then do, does it have tares? He said to them, The enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them, because they look so similar. 
right? They look identical. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time the harvest, I'll say to the uh, reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Remember I told you just a minute ago that the reason you wait to the harvest is because they look so identical until they're fully mature. And so the Lord's like, actually, I'm going to let this happen. I'm going to let the tares uh, grow together with the wheat, and then at the proper time, I'm, then I'm going to weed them out. So until that time, we actually have to deal with the tares. We actually have to be careful about the tares. And the tricky part, the tricky part, like I said, is they look so similar to the genuine. It looks, so I'm going to give you an example now from Matthew 15. Now, for those of you here last week, I talked about this portion of Scripture, but the reason I, I'm going to talk about it again, but come from a different angle. That's why I'm giving it to you, okay? Again, uh, this week. So, Matthew 15, 1 to 13. Then some Pharisees and teacher of the, teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who causes their father or mother is uh, uh, to be put to death. Curses, rather, sorry. But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and their mother. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And I, I kind of, every time I read this, and I mentioned this last week, doesn't that blow your mind that you can actually nullify the Word of God? Other translations say you can make it void by your traditions. And this is why this is such a big deal. And Jesus really got angered at this, right? Because it's like your traditions are actually nullifying the Word of God. Is that possible? It is. And that's why we, now he's confronting, I haven't said this yet, and I'm going to say it now to make a point. He's confronting the religious spirit, which is one of the counterfeit tares. Okay, I haven't gotten to that yet, but I want to, this is where I'm getting with this. Okay, so the Pharisees in scripture represent the religious spirit. And so we can, and that Jesus constantly was confronting them because they were the enemies of the cross. They were actually, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Part of the Antichrist spirit. Okay, I'm going to let that hang there for a while and explain that later. But they, from beginning to end, from Jesus' ministry, they tried to prevent and kill the Christ. It doesn't get much more Antichrist than that, does it? They're the ones who ended up hanging Jesus, right? So this religious spirit, though it looks good on the outside, is actually very insidious to the kingdom of God. Very um, destructive. Okay, and, and, and so not very many people made Jesus angry if you read the Gospels. The only people who really made Jesus angry are the Pharisees and Sadducees, and this is why. Because it's so dangerous what they're participating in. Now, what does it mean um, that they're nullifying the Word of God? And how could that be possible? As I was reading this this morning, an example came to me that uh, I wanted to share because I think. If we're not careful, especially in, in our stream, uh, you know, we could bank on, hey, God really used Catch the Fire and is using Catch the Fire to bless the world. We're on the cutting edge of what God's doing. We don't deal with traditions, do we? Right? If we're not careful, we could get into that trap. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Now, so Jesus gives some good examples of how they nullified the Word of God using Old Testament scriptures, because of course they were under the Old Testament at that time until Jesus raised again. But say, for example, in our in more contemporary times, what if the Lord of the, word of the Lord comes, just as an example, and says, okay, 
There's going to be no preach, no announcements, just straight worship today. Okay, imagine he said that and then we just went to worship. This is just an example, and I'm going to tell you why I'm giving this example, because of what the Lord brought to my memory this morning. At least I felt it was the Lord. What would happen if the Lord, his word, that was a genuine word, word from the Lord, that happened every week for a few weeks? Do you not? Do you feel like maybe some people get offended about that? How about this? Maybe, maybe not, because we love worship. What if we didn't have worship? Ooh. Now I'm touching on some sacred cows. What if we? the Lord said, I don't want you to have worship for a year. It's just going to be preach. Ooh. Well, okay, now let me ask you this. Now, now you can make a good scriptural case for why there's always worship, and that's fine. I'm using this to make a point. The way we do things, right? Say that was a genuine word of the Lord. People got offended. They don't want to just hear me yapping up here every week. They want some worship, right? How many of you are willing to bet because of our traditions, we might usurp that word and actually be like, okay, well, maybe that wasn't the word of the Lord. We want to have worship because that's always how we do it. That's always how we do it. So why would we do it any differently? And if we do it differently... I remember Jason Upton said once, and this always stuck with me because it's so true. He's like, you want to see, you want to test this? Go up, share Matthew 5, 6, and 7, nothing else, the Sermon on the Mount, and see how many people get offended. Just imagine I came up here and read the Sermon on the Mount. I thought he made a good point. Now, the reason this matters is because there was a church that I used to go to uh, uh, quite a while ago. Oh, no, I won't even say what it was. Sorry, I almost said it. I won't say you which city, because it doesn't matter. And, and I love this church because it was during that season of my life, a man from that church first took me to Toronto, and I, had, I got completely transformed and rocked in that church. So I'm not trying to uh, say anything negative about that church, but I always heard this story. When the revival broke out in the 90s, that church caught wind of it. Like, you know, revival was happening. People were getting blasted in this relatively traditional church. And it was a big deal. And then it ended. And, and so I couldn't help. He always told me about how this happened because, you know, that was quite a while ago now, I guess. So I asked him, well, why did it end? What happened? And he said, this was according to this one person. I'm sure there's different perspectives. But he said, what happened is that the Holy Spirit started moving really powerfully. And what was happening week after week, that's why I gave that example, it was just worship, people getting rocked, and going with the Holy Spirit, and every week there was no message for three weeks. Okay? So what happened is the Holy Spirit would fall, they would be getting blasted, and then the minister would be like, after a couple hours, okay, well, give the benediction, you're welcome to leave. <clears throat> Some people in the church weren't big fans of that. And unfortunately, they, they uh, used pressure, political pressure, because they were givers, and they gave a lot of money for a lot of years, so they felt like they had some sort of authority to t- say this, and they said something like this, I don't remember, this was quite a few years ago now, I don't remember the details, but something, they went to the pastor and said, okay, so if we're just going to do this every week, then what's the point on having you? Why are we paying you? So, what happened is, uh, from what I remember, is, again, I heard this quite a long time ago, but... Um, the next week, I think it was, or shortly after, the Holy Spirit fell, someone started laughing. Joy the Lord. And, and the pastor buckled, because, right, there's people in the church, you can just feel the tension and the anger. And he buckled under the pressure and got some ushers to get the person out. 
How many of you can guess what happened? I mean, I already sort of told you the beginning from the end. Holy Spirit quit showing up. Buckled under the pressure, right? Okay, if the Holy Spirit's doing this, this is going against our traditions, right? Year after year, this is how we do things, and now we're doing it different. We don't like that, so, you know. And that's what I'm saying. It's close to home because, believe it or not, we have traditions, and if we're not careful, we could fall into this trap. Just because it looks different or whatever, ugh, right? It, it might come close to home. It gives us an opportunity to examine ourselves. So verse 7, he says, you hypocrites. Now, I want to say this. Uh, the word hypocrite, I don't know if you've ever looked into it. And, and I wanted to be sure, because remember learning this a long time ago. I looked it up this morning. It's true. The word actually comes from the word actor. It was a Greek actor. And they wore masks. Okay, so what Jesus was saying, every time you see hypocrite, he's saying, you actors. Doesn't that make sense? So they're putting on a facade on the outside. They're acting like, hey, look at us. We're so good. We got all the together. And and I'll talk about this more some other time. But Jesus said, on the outside, you look so good. But on the inside, you're full of wickedness. You're full of evil, right? You're acting. Now, he says this to the Pharisees. And later on, you'll see this reoccurs when Jesus says this. You actors, I'll say. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from, from me, far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching, uh, teachings are merely human rules. It, it, this is such a critical portion of Scripture because I really feel like this is the prophetic, what the Lord was saying through this. This is what religion looks like. This is a really good picture. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are from, from, far from me. I want your hearts. If you look at the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over again, it was the heart. He's like, you say this, that if you murder somebody, then you're whatever. But I say this, if you're even angry at them, then you're committing, because you're committing it in your heart. That's the issue. Okay? So it's not about externals. And we still sometimes have trouble with that. It's about, it's about the heart. Okay, so Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth is not defiled, but what comes out of the mouth. He's talking about the heart now. This is what defiles them. Then the disciples came and asked, do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And last week I talked about this, right? Talking about offense now. He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. What, do you remember what parable I just read about the, the wheat and the tares? Yeah. This is one of the tears. Religion, the religious spirit, is one of the tears the Lord is talking about. And if you remember from last week, I mentioned that Jesus here was using offense to reveal that heart issue and uproot it. So, he, so that's the angle that's coming from last week. This week, I'm pointing out the fact that the tears, I'm going to argue, the counterfeit religious spirit is something that the Lord's saying they got to grow together because it, it's hard to see because they're acting. That's the difficulty. They're acting like they're genuine, so it's hard to discern. So how do we know, unless we know their hearts, whether they're acting or whether they're genuine or not? Sometimes we don't. So that's why the Lord said, let them grow together. But but I'm, I'm showing you this to make another point. Okay, so I'm going somewhere with this, but I just wanted to... Uh, read that part because I'm gonna. I'm making the case that that's the, uh, the the religious spirit is one of the tears that we have to be careful about. Okay, now going back to Matthew 13. Now, thank you, Kim. Bless Kim. In Jesus' name, she's been. Her and Rob are so amazing. You don't even know this, probably. Rob's working sound right now, and he's been working sound 
since September, I think, or was it August? And Kim's been doing projection. They're amazing. So I just bless every week. Thank you. They're hosting us every weekend. I hope they're not sick of us. We, have, we love them, though. They're amazing people. How many of you were here last week when Rob gave that powerful prophetic word? Wasn't that amazing? Oh, my goodness. So we just bless you. Thank you, Kim. Sorry to embarrass you. I see you guys like, oh, can't go anywhere. You're in the front row. <laughs> and you're working for Jack. Anyway. All right. So moving on. Matthew uh, 13, to 46. Okay. So this is at, right after the last parable about the wheat and the tares I just read. Um, almost right after. Another parable he spoke. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Remember, three kinds of leaven. That's the name of whatever, the series over here to say. Which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was leavened. We're talking about the genuine leaven, the kingdom of heaven, leaven. Jesus likens the kingdom to leaven. Okay, remember that because I'm, I'm, uh, this is important. Good leaven. That's the genuine good leaven of the kingdom. So all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. Without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Okay, fast forward to verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him. Excuse me, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. These tares are actually sown by the wicked one, by the enemy, okay? Religious spirit is actually, that's why it's so insidious. It looks good, but it's actually a counterfeit, right? The enemy tries to, it goes back to the garden, really, the, the tree of good and evil. Doesn't this apple look pleasing to the eyes, right? It's, it, anyway, it's, all this, it's, the, it's the enemy counterfeiting and trying to get people off track. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burnt into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. Now get this. And they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Isn't that interesting? These aren't unbelievers he's talking about. Or maybe they are. But he's actually saying these are in his kingdom. These tares are in his kingdom and he's allowing them to grow together with the genuine so when the time is right, he's going to then pull the tares out. Okay, so how, uh, I won't even ask, but, you know, I used to read this thinking he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about tares that the enemy sowed into his kingdom. So they're actually part of his kingdom right now. So, so and they'll gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the son of the kingdom of their father. He who has hears, let them hear. Notice I have two scriptures down there. Talking about the Pharisees. To show you that they're actually of the devil. Because <laughs> Jesus says this, right? They're sown by the enemy. And I'm trying to make this case that they're actually... Uh, uh, Jesus even calls them that in other portions of Scripture. So if you look at John 8, 44-45, you belong to your father. He's talking to the Pharisees. The devil. So he's calling the devil their father. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Remember, he's a murderer. He's confronting the Antichrist spirit right now. Your father, the enemy, is trying to kill what the father's doing, and he's sending you guys to do it. 
It's, you're actually, your father's the devil and he's a murderer and you're just like your father. Matthew 23, he's talking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, uh, verse 15, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, remember actors, you travel over land and sea to win over a single convert and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you. So, so I'm making this point, religion is evil. This negative kind of religion, right? People can do conceptions differently. I'm talking about the religious spirit. It actually has evil intents. It has murder. And that's why when the genuine move of the spirit comes, you get tons of resistance and hearts are revealed and the wheat and the tares. I talked a little bit about this last week, right? The, Jesus uses that to weed people out and show who's really on board and who's not. Okay, so I've already kind of set this up. The genuine leaven of the kingdom. Now this next scripture from Mark 8, 14 and 15 is what I'm, what I'm basing this off of. Not, not all of it, because I already gave you other parables of the wheats and tares. But these two counterfeit spirits, if you will, and, and, and I, I would, I would uh, ask you just to consider this with an open heart. Because these are parables, right? So you'd have to pray about whether what I'm saying is true or not. But I'm going to make a case scripturally, like I've been doing, of why I believe he's saying what he's saying here. Okay? So we already talked about the religious spirit a little bit. But this is right after Jesus multiplies the the bread to the 4,000. They're crossing the lake. And he was just confronted by a couple of Pharisees. So they're in the boat. So And they had forgotten to take bread. And did not have any more than one loaf with them. Then Jesus says this, verse 15. Get this, he's giving them orders. This is serious. This is not a suggestion, it's an imperative. That's why it's important for us to understand this. He was giving them orders uh, to them saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, so I already was touching on the leaven of the Pharisees, and I'll touch on that more another time. Today I want to focus on the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of Herod? Okay, so uh, they began to discuss this with one another, the fact that they had no bread, and Jesus aware of them saying, why do you discuss the fact that you had no bread? Do you not understand? Do you, not, do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said 12. Then I broke the seven uh, for the 4,000, how many baskets were bro- pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And he's saying, don't you understand? Those that have ears to hear, we're not talking about bread. And that's why it's important for us to realize when I'm talking about leaven, we're not talking about literal leaven, right? Jesus is making this clear. Okay, I'm not being literal here. Don't you understand what I'm saying? What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? I'm going to argue they're the counterfeit of the kingdom, the religious spirit, for lack of a better word, you might argue, it's, but I'm going to call it the religious spirit and the political spirit. The leaven of Herod, the political spirit. Okay, why am I talking, why is Jesus making the point to beware of these two things? Why is he giving them orders saying, beware of this? I believe, and, and I won't even ask you a show of hands, but I'm going to say those two spirits from probably the fall of man, but I'm going to say definitely from the life of Christ, have been two of the biggest enemies of the kingdom of heaven. If you go back in church, in fact, you look at the life of Christ, and we're going to be doing that later today. 
Who were his biggest enemies? Who from the beginning, the time he was born, were trying to kill him? It was Herod and the Pharisees. The Antichrist spirit, and that's what I'm gonna, that's what I'm arguing. These two are the Antichrist spirit, at least part of that Antichrist spirit. You look through church history, what have been the two biggest enemies of the kingdom in church history? I would argue the same thing. Political and religious spirit. What happened in the 300s when Constantine, the Roman emperor, made Christianity the official language of, uh, sorry, religion of Rome? That opened the door wide to this political spirit. People were becoming clergy who weren't even Christians to get leverage, to be political figures. And as the Roman Empire was crumbling, and they weren't, uh, it's, I'm probably going too far into this, but it was the bishops, they took the place of the governors. People were now making political maneuvers to get into places of position in the clergy because they had the authority. It was the Paul politics. So, of course, that introduced a ton of problems that I would argue we're still dealing with in Christendom. But what else? Religion. Now, they got to the point, the religious spirit, they got to the point where the Bible was illegal for centuries. Antichrist spirit. Trying to quench the kingdom. These two spirits working often work together, right? And you can see this throughout church history. In fact, do you know why? The Pope, there was a particular Pope, I can't think of his name now, it was in 1000 and something, made marriage illegal. It was for this reason. Because politically, the priests and the clergy were handing their positions to their sons. And he wanted to prevent that, that from happening. So he said, okay, you can't get married because we won't, this is causing a lot of trouble because their sons, right? It became about politics. Like their sons were taking over and doing evil things. So that was their way. Now, if you look, this is kind of interesting, you look in Timothy, and maybe I'll get to this next week, that's actually a doctrine of demons. Now, there's nothing, I'm not going to uh, uh, say if you're not getting married, that's bad, because it's all about, about God. But when Paul lists the different doctrines of demons that are going to happen, he actually says preventing marriage is one of them. Why am I saying that? I'm not saying that. Now, we're not talking about people, and we're not talking, I'm not confronting beliefs. If you think that's proper and right, that's fine. All I'm trying to say I'm trying to make the point that religion and politics have been the enemy of the cross ever since Jesus was on earth, throughout church history. I'm going to make the case of this too. Now, I won't, I won't ask to raise a hand, but I'm guessing if I did, probably almost 100% of us have either been through a church split or know somebody who has. And we probably all know somebody who's been through a church split who has been really hurt in the church who hasn't gone back for years and years and years. If you think about what happened, I would probably guess... If you really thought about it, it would be from one of these two things, if not a combination of both. Politics, power maneuvers, religion, and then the pain that comes from that. Because the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy and create division, if it, right? A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And so, if you look at a lot of church splits, no, not all of them, a lot of them, the, the root causes, politics that aren't good, and religion, quenching the move of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? We gotta beware. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and, and Herod. Okay, so this is important for us to understand. That's why I'm talking about this. I know it's maybe kind of a weird, uncomfortable message, maybe, I don't know. But it's important, beware. Now, why is this important? Now, like I said, 
I've heard the statistic 50% of Christians don't even go to church. Why? Now, there's obviously a ton of reasons. But I'm guessing a lot of them can be rooted in religion, religious spirit, and politics. They just fed up with it. But the reason this matters even more, and I'm going to argue this, and take it or leave it, and I'm going to read some scripture to make this case, and, and it, you know, that in the end time drama, the Babylonian system, like I said, these two antichrist spirits are behind the whole thing. Okay, so I'm going to talk. I'm going to show you this from Revelation 13. This is why we got to understand this and be aware of it. <clears throat> Excuse me, Revelation 13, and I'm going to just read all of it because you're going to see if you're if you're looking for this, you're going to see the Babylonian antichrist system that is confronting the end time church is religious and it's political and it's economic. Okay, so the dragon, this is chapter 13. I'll just read the whole thing and I'll read it fast. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea and it had horns and seven heads and that means government. Anyway, you can look into that. And 10 crowns on its horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard and had feet like those who bear the mouth uh, of a lion. Like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne great authority. On the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, and the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Religious, right? It's a religious system. They're worshipping the beast. It's not, it's not just an antichrist political figure. There's actually a religious element involved with it as well. Okay, so the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in, in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people. Again, this is why it matters, this message. And to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, all inhabitants of the earth, all worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Whenever the, the, he says that, that's important. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is uh, to go into captivity, into the captivity they'll go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. I had, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all authority of the first on its behalf. And it made the earth and all of its inhabitants worship the first beast. Okay, I'm going to just fast forward. You guys can read this. Now, what I want to get at is the last verse. Oh, actually, the last two verses. Okay, verse 16. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of man. Now, it's interesting, I could also be translated the number of humanity. This number 666, what does that mean? And I'm going to throw something out there and let you pray about it. Because I don't want to get into this eschatology. You know, we can all be here for 100 years talking about what this means. But I am going to throw something and let you consider it. I cannot remember the source, and that's why you're going to take this with a grain of salt, but I think there's some truth to it. And if I remember right, this man was visited by an angel, and I think it was Gabriel. And Gabriel told him what 666 stands for. So, so pray about this. 
It's the number of humanity. Number six, biblically speaking, is the number of man. We were created on the sixth day. What he said is the six is the counterfeit political six, economic six, religious six system. The Babylonian system with those three elements. You look in this chapter, you couldn't buy or sell without the mark of the beast unless you worshipped him. Economic. He was a political figure, and we know that Antichrist is going to set up in the uh, temple of God, right? Make people worship him, the political and the religious, all together. But it's, it's, the, it's, it's the human, right? It's not of God's origin, it's human. But the two, remember what I'm talking about, the leaven of Fer- the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, the religious, political, antichrist system, I would argue, is involved with this end time drama. And that's why, I w- and again, pray about it. I, I don't want to like throw you off here with saying that. But I want you to consider the importance of it, even if you don't buy that. And that's fine if you don't. I'm not trying to put that on you. Consider what I said about church history, the life of Christ, and, and the negative fruit that comes from these two things, if you let them in the church. Right? I already said, I would argue church splits, a lot of pain have happened from this. So we've got to beware, beware, and we've got to overcome these things. Okay, the next verse, I want to show you, they work together. You can see this throughout scriptures that the Herodian and the political and the religious spirit work together to kill Jesus. Okay, so Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. I read this last week, but I want to point something out here. Okay, so he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand, remember? And okay, so I'll just, they wanted to accuse Jesus. To see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Because they were so religious. Remember, we're talking about the religious system, the religious spirit. They were so steeped in their religious traditions that they wouldn't even allow Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus was angered at their, at their hardened hearts. And he said to the man, stretch your hand, and the man was healed. Look at the last verse. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. How they might kill him. They plotted together. The political religious spirit often worked together. And again, anti-Christ spirit. They're trying to kill the work of Christ. So, so sometimes we might say, oh, that's just a religious spirit. That's just a Jezebel spirit, whatever. They're often pawns of this chief spirit, if you will, the political spirit behind it all. Trying to create division and trying to suppress and control and manipulate through human means to subserve or to undermine, rather, the kingdom of heaven. So today, because this is a huge kind of (coughs) message, I want to focus just a little specifically today on the political spirit in particular. Because this is one that, um, you know, I haven't heard much on, but there's a great book. A great book by, how many of you have heard of Fazal Malik? Cool. Basil Melch, my goodness, you guys got to look into him if you haven't. He was a Muslim who had an encounter with God. And he's such an amazing prophet of God now. He's just on fire getting so many Muslims saved. He has a book called The Political Spirit. I'd highly recommend it. I got a lot of this from him. Okay? So, the political spirit, like I said, the leaven of Herod is typified in Scripture by Herod. So we can actually get a lot of insight by looking at the different... Portions of scripture that talk about Herod and the characteristics of this spirit so that we can discern it when it's in our midst. The difficulty with the political spirit is that it looks so good on the outside. And I'm going to show you some scriptures that show this. Right? We talked about the mask it wears. 
The tear, it looks just like the kingdom, intentionally, but it, its motives are evil. So it has always has an agenda. It always has a facade. Look, I look so good, right? That's what the facade is. Look at me. I'm all about the kingdom. I'm all about Jesus, but the intent is evil. He, it always has an agenda that it's trying to forward. Often the agenda is to kill the work of Christ. That's the problem. That's why there's been so many church splits over this, because that was its intent all along. The agenda is to create... Now, I want to say this, okay? We're we're talking about spiritual forces now. We're not talking about specific people, right? I want to make that clear, right? We're We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. So if you know somebody who's been used in this way for maneuvering or whatever, don't demonize them. So you just have a religious spirit. You just you hear that all the time. You have a political spirit. Understand that they're maybe being used or influenced by something else, and that's what the enemy is, not the people. Yeah. I want to make that clear, okay? So, characteristics of the political spirit so that we can discern it. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that we have not, at least to my knowledge, in this church have to d- d- deal with this yet, and hopefully ever. Okay, but it's good up front now, so we're aware of it. So when it's happening, wait a minute, let's step back, because I think this might be happening, maybe. And then it gives us some insight into what to pray and so forth. Characteristics of the political spirit. And there's a whole bunch, and like I said, today I'm trying to like weed out, and, and I came up with five that I want to point out, because I think if you focus on these five, uh, you can make a good case scripturally that it's the case. So the first characteristic is the facade with a hidden agenda. And I already mentioned this a little. Okay, so the only agenda it has is to kill the work of God. Like I said, it's an antichrist spirit. It wants to kill, but it looks good doing it. Okay, that's the key. It looks good doing it, so it's hard to discern. It, it, it actually requires spiritual discernment to know this is what's going on. It, but it always has a hidden agenda, and that's the facade. You usually know it's operating because you can't see it. It looks so good. And it tries to control against the will of God in the kingdom. So... Look at Matthew twenty-two fifteen to twenty-two. This is illustrating a couple things, but this is right now we're talking about the facade. Okay, so the Pharisees, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus. Remember, they're trying to to trap Jesus so they can kill him. It's the Antichrist spirit behind it. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? This is important to say this probably. Okay, so Herod was really unique because he actually had followers. Okay, he was the king of Judah during this time. He had followers called the Herodians. They were actually a political party and they really liked Herod. They were actually Jews who really liked Herod. Okay, and like, because he was doing things that they appreciated and so forth. So they had a whole party behind him called Herodians. The other interesting thing, and I'll say this in case I forget later, did you know Herod is actually a direct descendant of Esau? Talking about the Antichrist now. You remember who is Jacob? Now Jesus was the seed, the promised seed that came through Jacob, was manifest on earth. And then what did Herod do his whole life? He tried to kill him. The descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. Came from Edom. If you look into it, that's the descendants of Esau. Anyway. So, teacher they said. We, now get this. I'm talking about the facade now. They said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Right? They're flattering them. But they have an evil intent. They're trapped. Tell us then, 
what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Trying to trap him now, because people weren't a fan of Caesar at that time, right? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, remember, they had an evil intent, but they had the facade to hide it. He said to them, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for the, uh, paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is on this, and by whose inscription? Caesar's replied. Then he said to them, give back to Caesar what Caesar's, to God what's God. They were amazed, and they walked away. So Jesus came with an awesome answer, right? We know that. The point is, this is illustrating the facade and the evil intent trying to chap Jesus, right? And that's how the, the political spirit often comes. The second characteristic, number two of the political spirit, it's like a fox, meaning it's crafty, it's cunning, and it's sly. What, what gives me the grounds to say this? It's really interesting. Jesus called Herod a fox. Luke 13, 31 to 33. At this time, remember, some of, they worked together. Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. What's a fox? Even in scripture, symbolic of deceptive, but not just any kind of deception. It's a cunning, crafty deception. Right? We talked about the facade. It looks good on the outside, but on the inside it has evil intent to forward an agenda, and that's the key. The agenda is to kill the works of Christ. Okay? But on the outside, they look at like, oh, teacher, you're so awesome, right? You don't care what people say, so tell us. We really want to know what your answer is. The third characteristic is that it forms alliances to forward its agenda. We already talked about this. One of the major alliances that are formed is with the religious spirit. But it's not just the religious spirit. That's just, they work together nicely. The political spirit's always forming alliances, in the natural and in the spiritual. So you'll see these power plays happening, even in the church. Forming alliances to get some kind of agenda forward, right? In order to, to get whatever it is their selfish ambition is. Politics. So here's an example and this is going to illustrate all three that I just took three characteristics. This is really interesting. We can learn a lot about this political spirit in this portion of Scripture. Okay, this is Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 18. And, and so pay attention to this because, like I said, there's a lot of insight. Herod, again, is typified as the political spirit. Okay, so after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah during the time of the King Herod, Magi, or wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So their intent was genuine, okay? When the king Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophets read. Okay. Look at what Herod's doing. He's going, he's like, oh my goodness, I'm freaking out because the Messiah is coming here and I, I want to kill him. That's his intent. But he goes to the religious people of his day, he goes to the church, hey, where's the, I'm really, I, where's the Messiah going to be born? Think about this. What if a political figure, a well-known political figure, I won't name names, but came to our church, hey, teach me the Bible. 
Where's the Messiah going to be born? Wouldn't we be really excited? Oh my goodness, look who's coming and asking us about the scriptures. He's interested in the Bible. He really wants to know where the Messiah is, right? We, so he comes under that facade, the good facade, the good intent. And they're like, so they tell him, okay, Bethlehem. So then he goes and has another secret meeting. Verse 7, he called the Magi, and he found out from them the exact time where the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Remember the facade and the good intent, the tares, looking like they're legitimate children of the kingdom and that their intentions are genuine and pure to advance the kingdom. I want to worship Jesus, so please, when you find him, come tell me. We know, later on it shows, his intent was completely evil. Okay, So again, those, those three characteristics that I mentioned, operating here. So after they heard of the king, the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child. Okay, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. But, verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. This is important. They are being led by the Holy Spirit. How do we overcome the political spirit? Because it... How would they know otherwise? They wouldn't, right? Because the political spirit's like, hey, I want to worship them too. We would be duped unless by the spirit we learned this is actually evil. So we got to pay attention to dreams, to visions, to anything the Lord's showing us, because it could be wisdom and insight showing us the evil intent behind the political spirit, whatever's happening. That's critical, being led by the spirit. But look at this. When they had gone, now get this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. Another dream. Dreams are important. And thank God they took those dreams seriously, right? Because if they didn't take those seriously, what would have happened? He wanted to kill Jesus. So it's so critical we're led by the Spirit. It's so critical we pay attention to prophetic insight the Lord's giving us. Otherwise, it could be not very good. All right. So then he got it, okay, yeah. When Herod realized, verse 16, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Why did he want to kill the children? There's a couple of reasons. Remember, Antichrist spirit is the first, wanting to kill the purposes of God. Secondly, is territorial. He was threatened, right? Because, hey, there's, here's the king of the Jews. Oh, my goodness. He's going to usurp my authority. He's going to become in a position. And that's another, I'm to talk about that. that's another critical factor here is the territorial spirit. I'm concerned about my position, and this person is going to take it. Look at what he did, though. He killed all the children. What does that remind you of in the Bible? Moses. Whenever God's about to pour out something really significant, this demonic spirit comes and tries to kill all the children. Now, what does that remind you of in contemporary times? Abortion. Do you think it's any coincidence that abortion became legal in the last 40 years? Why would that happen? This same spirit's propping its head because God has an end time, right, revival, that he's trying to raise up the army of God 
And the enemy, like he was here, is trying to usurp at the Antichrist system, trying to quench the purposes of God. Now the challenge is, look, he, like I said, he looked good on the outside. Oh, I want to worship. Look at the, the abortion agenda. It's all the, the intentions. Oh, we want to have free rights. We want to have equal rights for women. Who are we to tell them what to do or how to live their lives? Sounds pretty good on the outside, doesn't it? The intent is completely evil. Okay, now again, I'm not demonizing anyone. I'm just saying it's an evil spirit behind this. And you see it in the history of the Bible. Whenever God's trying to raise up something, the enemy sends this. So it's critical for us to learn from this. And to know if people are promoting a demonic agenda like killing children, that there's got to be some reason for it, that the enemy's doing this so proactively in our times. The fourth characteristic, and I already mentioned, territorial, lust for power behind that spirit, and a fear of losing power. And I would argue this is often where it props up in the church, territorial. I don't want to lose my position, and God's raising up this young guy right here, right, or whatever. Concerned for their own reputation or whatever. So, hey, we're going to play, we're going to, you know, do power plays here to get them out. That's what we got to watch out for. We can't be threatened. If God's doing something, we, we cannot. Our reputation, our territory, our position cannot even be into in consideration, to be honest. Because if otherwise, we could fall into this trap and the enemy's looking for that. Jealousy, envy, hidden agendas. These are all ways that political spirit gets an in route in the church. We got to really be careful about that. We got to really check our motives. Why are we doing this? Otherwise, you know, there could be negative fruit from it. Herod showed this. He was, he was saying, hey, I want to worship the king. And really, in reality, it was a territorial concern about losing his position. Again, looking good on the outside. So, so that's, <laughs> that's the challenge with the spirit. The fifth characteristic. Fear of man. And it's a man-pleasing spirit. Okay? And I'm going to show you another scripture here. So... Man-pleasing spirit that operates by the fear of man and it does things to win the favor of others. Political schemes. Scared of losing their position. You can see how these are all related, right? More concerned about reputation than about doing what's right. Now I'm going to show you this. Again, we're showing you Herod as a type of the spirit because the spirit was using him. That's why Jesus is the love of Herod. Matthew 14, talking about the fear of man. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead, he's talking about Jesus. That is why the miraculous powers are working him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So, okay, so he wanted to kill John, but he's scared of the people. Reminds me of Saul a little bit in the Old Testament, but anyway, we'll leave that. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. That is intense. <laughs> then the king was distressed. Get this. Why did he do it? But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. He was so concerned that his dinner guests, what they would think of him, hey, you just told her this, why won't you do it? 
that he went ahead and did it, regardless of the fact that it was evil and that he didn't even want to do it. Right? That's how the political spirit works. And you can see this in politics all the time. Right? You, you, you hear about politicians being blown by the wind. Right? Where's the wind? It's, it's what the people want, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to compromise my actual beliefs because of the fear of man, because of the dinner guests. And he had beheaded John in prison. The head was brought on a platter, given to the girl, whatever. Uh, okay. We got to watch out for the fear of man. And we got to watch out not to give in to the fear of man. We got to not compromise. No matter who the person is that's trying to get you to compromise, to get an agenda forwarded, watch out. I like this. Luke 6.26. This is from the Message Bible. I love this. This is Jesus. There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others. Saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true, not popular. Wow. Come on. We have got to watch out that we don't compromise. If the Holy Spirit's doing something, we cannot buckle under the fear of man. Like that church I talked about earlier. Political maneuvering. Hey, I'm a, I give a lot to this church and I have for years there and I don't really like what you're doing here. Shut the kingdom of heaven. If that's not the political spirit at work, and again, I'm not demonizing people, it's the spirit behind it. The religious spirit. We have got to go with whatever the Holy Spirit's doing, where our convictions are. And it is difficult not to buckle under the pressure of people. I know this. I teach this stuff in school. I know how difficult it is when you're in a group setting not to give into it, but we have to overcome that by the Spirit. We have to not compromise. I love this quote by Rick Joyner. because there's a lot of truth to it. Church leadership is now as disrespected as our political leadership because in general we have become so afraid of offending someone. Is that not a plague in our culture? Political correctness is such a plague in our culture. And I'm bold about this because I believe it's true. Now, of course, we don't want to offend people and we want to be sensitive. But this taken to its logical conclusion is ridiculous. Let me give you an example. No, I'm not going to do that. Because you would know who I'm talking about. But, but the things people do because of political correctness doesn't even make sense. And you know, people are taking advantage of this. I'll say this, and I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want to... Uh, I know people might have different opinions about this. The Muslim Brotherhood, for decades, on their website, they're bold about this. I'm not even like making this up on their website said they're going to use our political correctness against us to get into our system and then whatever they're going to do. They've been doing this for years because they knew this is an inroad. So where do you hear all the time? Islamophobe, Islamophobe, right? And people are buckling under the pressure of political correctness and not standing up for what's right. Thank God for... Sorry, I don't want to go into politics, but I thank God that I see people. I see people in this next presidential election in the United States who are not giving into this demonic political correctness spirit. Now, hear me right. It's okay to be sensitive, and we want to be. We don't want to offend people. There's some terminology we shouldn't use, but we can't give into the fear of man. 
We can't compromise what's true. We have to be lovers of truth. So that's what he's saying. Church leadership's not as disrespected as our political leadership because in general, we've become so afraid of offending someone. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 1.10, if we were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We forsake following the Lord to the degree that we're controlled by the fear of man. Maybe this is why at the end of the book of Revelation, and I, this is a good point, the first group that gets thrown into the lake of fire is the cowardly. Have you guys ever read that? All these people get thrown in the lake of fire? Sexual, right? Whatever. All these people you would think. And the first is the cowardly. It's intense. Why the cowardly? So, what can we do about this? What's happening? Start living courageously. We must refuse to be controlled by what anyone else thinks, but rather by what the one thinks who called us. Amen. We have to be... We have, in these times, we have to stand for truth, regardless of the consequences, and it's just going to get harder and harder and harder, and we can see that about what's going on now with the, the way things are going. But we have got to stand for truth. It's the lovers of truth that are going to persist to the end. And then Rick Joyner, someone else who said, I, and I think this might be true too, that more people are led by the religious spirit than by the Holy Spirit right now in the church. Something to think about. I don't know if that's true, but it, you know. So how do we conquer this thing? The five. Yeah. <clears throat> Good point. The five characteristics. Let me go back on my notes here, just for you guys writing down. First, it's a facade. It has a facade with a hidden agenda. Looks good on the outside, but its a, its purpose is to uh, forward a hidden agenda, which is an evil intent. The second characteristic is it's like a fox, meaning it's crafty and sly and deceptive and cunning. That's right. I said Jesus called Herod a fox, and that's why. Third characteristic is it forms alliances to forward its agenda. Remember we talked about, especially with the religious spirit, they work hand in hand. The fourth characteristic of the political spirit is territorial. It has a lust for power behind, and it, it has a fear of losing power. It's the position and the fear that comes with that and trying to guard the territory and the position. And the fifth characteristic is the fear of man and man-pleasing. So how do we conquer this political spirit? Because, like, you know, okay, it's enough. I'm trying to teach you. First of all, we've got to be aware of it because Jesus commands us to. Remember, it said it commanded them to be aware of this. But secondly, we have to know and be discerning so that we can overcome it if it's happening in our midst. Now, this is interesting. Um, why is the spirit, this, remember, the spirit, we talked about the tears, is a counterfeit of the kingdom. But it's doing things through man's way. God is trying to release the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to release an apostolic movement in the end times. Why is this political spirit such an issue? Because it's trying to counter it and maneuver and usurp what God is doing. Now, the interesting thing is we can see this in the Bible. Those of you to hear and again, you can pray about this, but I believe this is a type of what God is showing us when the political spirit gets defeated, then God's apostolic government can be moved forward. Acts chapter 12. So this is interesting. It was at about this time that King Herod arrested someone who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. 
He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Remember, I alluded to this last week. When he saw, get this, when he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Oh, they like this. Remember, man-pleasing spirit. Concerned with honor and reputation. So I'm going to kill. I'm going to keep doing this, right? So he arrests Peter. So when he saw that he's, oh yeah, I said it. Uh, this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded. Okay, so Peter was arrested. He's in prison, being guarded. And the church was earnestly praying. <laughs> That's a key. Earnestly praying for Peter. Okay? The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping, I love this, between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up! And he said, the chains fell off Peter's wrist. They passed, and okay, and Peter, okay, I'm fast forwarding, verse 10. They passed, and the first and second guards, and they came uh, to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through, and when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left them. Then Peter came to himself. He thought this was a vision. This is funny. It says that in another place. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now the interesting thing is, then he goes to Mark's house, and they're praying for him. They're praying for him. He knocks on the door. You guys remember this, right? And they're like, and the, and the servant girl, it's like, Peter's here. And they're like, no, it's, no, he's not. They don't even believe it. They're like, oh, it must be his angel or whatever. And then they let him in, whatever. Now I'm going to fast forward. Okay, verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become uh, of Peter. After Herod had thoroughly searched, uh, made for, and a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Oof. Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Antichrist spirit, right? This is the voice of a god, not a Immediately. Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died in front of everybody. Now, this is the grandson of Herod the Great. Okay, this is his grandson. He's in, he's in power now. For all intents and purposes, we're going to say he's, he's a type of the political spirit. The church is praying. The angel comes because, right, he sets himself. It's like the end time. Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God. God strikes him down, kills him. Now look what happens. Remember, we're talking about how the point of the Spirit is to kill what the apostolic movement God's doing, and that's what he was doing. He's trying to kill Peter. He killed James. Then the chief spirit, if you will, the political spirit dies. Look what happens. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Get this, Acts 13, I love this. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Syrian, get this, Mannion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is crazy. He was his foster brother, this guy. Now he's, he's doing the work of the kingdom. He's a teacher and a prophet. And Saul, 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them. Look at that. Chief demonic political spirit dies right away. Paul and Saul go to Antioch and they get commissioned as apostles and go out and spread the gospel for the rest of the world. That kingpin demonic political spirit. Once we conquer that, the apostolic movement that God wants to usher in the entire earth will be released. And every time, the political spirit, what it's trying to do, like I said, is usurp, right? The antichrist spirit, trying to prevent the moving of the Holy Spirit in the church. The interesting thing about Antioch, it was a forerunner church. That was the first church that we were called Christians. Prophets and teachers, right? They had the model, the new wineskin model of what the church was to look like, and they had so much fruit from that. And they sent out, imagine that, Paul and Saul from their midst. What did Paul go on to do, right? Or Paul and Barnabas, rather. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I'm talking about overcoming the political spirit now and the fruit of it, if we overcome it. So how do we overcome it? I'm going to end here, but I want to mention, so how do we overcome it? That's a type and shadow of overcoming the political spirit. Number one, I have three things. Keep our motives pure before the Lord. Because the political spirit's looking for a doorway in individuals, looks at motives. If it can get a doorway in someone's hidden agenda, in their motives, that's a doorway. So we got to watch our motives and we got to stay pure. We got to not care about our positions. I said this earlier, not be territorial and not form alliances with others and, and try and maneuver with power plays to get what we want. We got to check our motives. And it's, that's why, like I said, this looks good on the surface. That's what's so challenging about it. It's a tear. It looks good. It looks like it wants to advance the kingdom, but it doesn't. Okay? So part of it is our responsibility, being pure before the Lord. Okay, so we should make sure we don't, um, we don't have jealousy and envy. That's another end road, like I talked about with position. Um, and not come against the people that God is using. Because if we get territorial, that's what we might do. Not intentionally, but we got to watch what we do to protect our own interests. We don't want to go there. Um, instead, we got to walk in love. We got to walk in humility. We got to walk in forgiveness. We got to bless what God is doing, even if that means, like John the Baptist said, I got to decrease and he's got to increase. Okay? So it's, it's somewhat up to us to check our own motives so that we're not giving into this thing. Right? So that's number one. And ask God to reveal your motives if you're concerned about that. Number two, wisdom and revelation from the Holy Spirit. Because this, this is, uh, like I said, looks good on the outside, and even Jesus said, leave it alone, otherwise you might accidentally rip out one that's not giving into this terror or the Spirit. We need revelation by the Holy Spirit. That is how the Magi got around it, right? It was through a dream. Yeah. That was how Joseph got around it, was through an angel of the Lord appearing to him in a dream. It takes the wisdom of heaven to see. Because like I said, it's motives and it's the, it's the heart. And so if, if we're just looking at externals, we might not see its operation. So we've got to constantly be open to the Holy Spirit and to prophetic revelation and dreams 
so that, and, and actually pay attention to them. If the Lord shows us something, yeah. hey, this is what's going on, then we got to actually take it seriously and act, act it out. Yeah. Being led by the Spirit. Honestly, that's the <laughs> essence of the New Covenant. But the third thing is related to this. Prayer. Remember Acts chapter 12. They were earnestly praying for Peter. And then the Lord released Peter from the trap of the political spirit. And then the political spirit ended up falling. Prayer, and they go hand in hand with being led by the Holy Spirit. Praying that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit would give us the discernment to know what's actually happening and to pray into it so that it doesn't take root in the church. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, on that note, I would like to pray from Ephesians chapter 1, praying about the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Actually, I'm going to pray this, I'm going to pray Colossians from Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14, over us, their apostolic prayers, asking for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, Okay. And I'm also going to pray too for those of us who've been hurt by this insidious spirit. Maybe in the past, or we know someone who is, I'm going to pray too that God helps us forgive that person and that God helps heal our hearts. So, Lord, we thank you. Whoa. For your discernment, Father. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your revelation. And I just pray, according to Ephesians 1, that you fill us with all the wisdom and revelation through your spirit, so that we would know you better, Lord, and that you would open the eyes of our heart so that they'd be enlightened, in order that we would know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, your incomparably great power for us who believe. We thank you that that power is like the working of your mighty strength, which you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power, including the demonic, political, and religious spirit. Every name above all names. And Lord, I just ask that you'd fill us all with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives so that we live a life worthy of you and please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power, according to your glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience. We just give joyful thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For you've rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, I just pray for every one of us who's been directly or indirectly hurt in the church by these spirits. Lord, and some of our loved ones, God, I just ask that you would heal our hearts, that you would help us to forgive. And that you would help us to overcome any offense that's come as a result. And realize that it's not the people, but it's the spirit behind them trying to undermine what you're doing. We choose not to give in to that. But instead, we act in the opposite spirit of blessing them and praying for them. And forgiving them and releasing them in the fullness of our forgiveness. God, I just ask that you would pour out your spirit in such a way that those people who've been hurt in the church because of these spirits, that they would come back to the church, Lord, and raise up into the army of God that you've called them to be. And into the positions, the apostolic positions that you've called them to be. And help us to see what this really is, Lord, so that we would overcome it in our own lives.
And so that we wouldn't give in and cause pain that results of these demonic antichrist spirits. I thank you, Father, that it's your good pleasure that you pour out wisdom and revelation by your spirit. And so we just thank you for that, God. And I just ask that you pour out your healing oil right now in our hearts, God. And help us to overcome any offense because of this stuff in the past. We just bless your holy name, Lord. And we thank you for the discernment as we move ahead not to give in to the religious and the political spirit. We thank you for that, Father. Thank you for dreams and visions and any other insight you can give us to overcome these things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So if you want a prayer for this or anything, we want to encourage you to come up and we want to pray for you, whether it's offense from maybe you've been affected by these things, or maybe it's just for a loved one that you know has been so wounded by this, because I know some. We probably all do. And it's, it's a tragedy because they're so passionate for the Lord, but you don't even see them because they don't go to church anymore. They're not fellowshipping because they've been so hurt and they're sick of religion. If you want us to pray for that, or whatever, if you just want an encounter God, that's what we're all about in this church. We just want you to encounter God. That's what we all want, isn't it? So if you just want that, that's awesome, and we want to pray for that. So whatever it is, I'd love to have the uh, ministry come up. Just come up to the front, um, and we'll pray for you. The rest of you, God bless you. Feel free to just stay around, soak, uh, uh, fellowship, whatever um, you'd like to do, and, and uh, God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.